0: Asana. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's good to see you guys all right uh, one one thing before we start the sermon if you have your bulletins with you uh, we are designating this Sunday as a giving Sunday uh, you have heard the, the way we preach and the way we uh, pray uh, for the Last three Sundays, we've been promoting the medical mission in Cuba. We as a church are partnering with another church in Orlando. We are going to Cuba to send medical supplies and help to our brothers and sisters who are in need of help right now. And so we would like to respond to that need. In the early church, in the book of Acts, when when the church has a need, especially for the widows, they pull their resources together and they respond to the need. God has opened generosity in the hearts of the people. And so we would like to also give that opportunity for every one of us here right now and there are many ways to give uh, if you have your bulletins with you we have envelopes inserted in every bulletin you can give uh, through this bulletin you can also have uh, gonna be put on the screen uh, at the back of your bulletin it also says that you can also give through online giving it's maybe the fastest way to give right now because all you have to do is to use your cell phone and gain the Email address of our church, so that we can have those resources available to respond to the need. My prayer is that as we respond to this, God will open the generosity of our hearts, so that we can continue to bring our ministry together. But say amen to that. If God is leading you to give, uh, respond to the need for the mission in Cuba and also for the needs of the church, would you consider this? Let's uh, pray together and consider this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the privilege of coming to you. Thank you for the privilege of being part of the family where we can gather every Sunday to worship you, where we can gather peaceably in one location. Thank you so much, Father, for giving us also the opportunity to be partners in the ministry with you. Would you open our hearts so that we can generously give for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. How are, how are you? Good? Seems like we're so happy today. Yeah. We'll, we'll have some time for Mother's Day later. Uh, we'll, we prepared something for you. Uh, but we're still in this series. It's called A King After God's Own Heart. And we're now in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're doing this series of study so that we can appreciate what the Bible is saying. But let me first ask you this question. Have you ever read your Bible and say, hmm, this is something weird? Have you ever read your Bible and come across something that's, that doesn't agree with you, and you say, this is weird? Now, I'm asking that because our text today is somewhat in this category of weirdness. And I'm not saying that. It's weird because we in the 21st century have no filter to read and think about those things in the Bible that are, in the ancient Israelites, are normal but to us are considered weird. Now, I say that also because... When people read the Bible today, it's not how the the ancient Israelites read the Bible before. When we read the Bible today, it's like eating fast food. It's like having one verse and reading one verse and saying, it's enough for me to last the day. Now, I say that because if you just read one verse at a time, or one verse for that matter, you miss the, the bigger context. The bigger context is what makes us appreciate what the Bible is saying or what God is saying. And that is, for me, like eating fast food. We eat, um, expect fast food that is easy to digest. It's warm, it's, it's yummy, but it's also entertaining. Uh, anything else is boring. Now, when we come to church, sometimes we expect also fast food. And that, because we are trained to appreciate sermons that way. See, uh, beginning from the first century up to the early 1990s, the, the kind of preaching that was being done to the church is not like the preaching that we do today. The kind of preaching that happened before was more of study of the word, opening the word, and expositing what's what the meaning of the scripture is. But today, uh, beginning with you know, TV shows and game shows, and in the early 1990s, we have the televangelists. So that when we are watching this, we are trained. To expect something of that happening in our church this is the problem with the mega churches right now they are expecting to give a big show so take away the lights take away the sounds take away the decor it feels like it's not church anymore see church is not like that when we approach the word of god it's not the eloquence of of the minister who's preaching it's about the content of the word of god and this is what i would like to settle today as i was reflecting on this uh, I had to tell myself that sometimes people are looking for the feel-good stuff. I mean, it's, it's normal. We want to have that feel-good stuff. When you uh, watch television, you want the feel-good stuff. That's why we like watching the, the feel-good movie, the chick flick movies, right? You want the comedies and, and the love stories. But when you come to the Word of God, there, these are serious thoughts. These are serious messages from the Lord. We're of to just approach this with a feel-good. But some people, when they come to church, they expect that the worship is, is going to make them feel good, and the sermon is going to make them feel good. And if, it's not, if it does not meet the expectation, then I'm going to have to pack up and go to the other church. When we approach and come together as a church, we're not expecting to feel good. We're expecting for God to talk to us. We're expecting fellowship within our church. So I am reminding myself that today as I preach, the goal is for us to, to help us dive deeper in the Word, not to stay on the surface, but dive deeper and really see what God is telling us today. The goal of the preaching is not to change behavior. It's not to make you more kind, more patient, more understanding, more generous. That's not my goal. My goal is to change the way we think. Romans chapter 12 verse 2, the renewal of our mind. So, having that in mind, let's go to the weird stuff. 1 Samuel 16. Before I do that, I want to make a quick recap of what's happening in 1 Samuel 16. If this is your first time to be reading 1 Samuel 16, it's going to be weird. So, you have to know the backstory. It's like any other chismes; you got to know the background or the story. The backstories are important to understand what the Bible is saying. So, 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 8 is about the condition of the Israelites, the spiritual condition of the Israelites, and it's encapsulated in one word, rebellion. Chapters 1 through 8. Now, chapters 9 through 15 is about Saul. The people of Israel rebelled against God, rejected God, demanded the king, and chapters 9 through 15 is God rejecting their choice. God just rejected Saul. And he will put himself a person or a man after God's own heart. Now we come to chapter 16. If we are going to set uh, a wider context so to understand 1 Samuel 16, we're going to have to go back to the last statement in chapter 15 so that we know where it ends. But when you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, the last portion of it, you are reminded of something. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Two words here: he regretted that he had made on earth, and he grieved him to his heart. Now, right after Genesis six six, we are introduced to Noah, the ark, and the flood. Keep that in mind. Now, if you read back one Samuel chapter fifteen, the last portion is verse thirty-five. It will give you memories of Genesis chapter six verse six. I'm going to read to you one Samuel fifteen thirty-five. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, the same thing with Genesis 6, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king of Israel. Now, with almost the same language, God regretted the creation of mankind in Genesis, and in Samuel, God regretted that he made king, that Saul was made king. So both stories may be years apart, but there's a repetition of theme in here. That God is regretting something. It's an emotional response. It's not an intellectual response. It's an emotional response for something that happened. In Genesis 6, man became wicked. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul has rebelled against the Lord. And so in both stands, God has been grieved and he has regretted. Now, right after Genesis 6, there's Noah, the ark, and the flood. And so we're expecting it's going to happen also the same way in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So who's going to be the new Noah? What's going to be the new ark? And what's going to be the punishment, the flood? Now we are introduced to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Let me read to you this. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God is going to replace Saul and will choose a different king, king after God's own heart. But right off the bat, when you read this, you are introduced to the fact that Yahweh did not vacate his throne. He's still the God of Israel. He still owns the kingdom. He's the king, and he's the one who chooses the king. So he's asking Samuel to go to Bethlehem and see the sons of Jesse, so that God will be able to give him a new king. But here's the first weird stuff. When the Israelites first tried to enter Canaan, the spies went there and they saw the land is really true, it's really flowing with milk and honey. And they came back and reported to the people, and they said, it's true, the land was flowing with milk and honey. But there's one problem. Giants. There were giants in the land. There were tall people. Now, we're not talking about the Game of Thrones kind of giants, 30 feet tall or 50 feet tall, not the kind of giants, but tall people. Now, what's interesting here is the term that was used for giants in Numbers 13 are Anakim and Rephaim. These are a group of people or tribe of people who are tall, immensely tall, giants, as they say. When you read Numbers 13, the memories go back to Genesis chapter 6 because in Genesis chapter 6, The Bible said that in those days, there were Nephilim, again, another term for the word giant. But the word Nephilim connotes not just giants, but also the idea of gibor. Gibor means mighty warriors, or great men, or great warriors. So think about, you know, there was a movie about uh, Helen of Troy, Uh, Troy, I think is the title, where Brad Pitt, Um, was the Achilles, played Achilles, and he fought against a very tall guy. So think about that. He's not really giant, giant, but someone who's really tall. Now, we're not going to go in-depth on this subject. Uh, We're going to expound that uh, some other time, but I'm using the word weird in the 21st century because we do not have a filter to understand giants. Anyone see the giant? Anyone? No. (laughs) I haven't seen a giant myself too. But the Bible has it. So we cannot deny it. If the Bible mentions it, then it's true. There are giants. In fact, you can find it all across the the Bible. Anyway, so the Israelites saw giants in the land of Canaan. And they changed their minds. They rebelled against God. And they say, we're not going to go into Canaan. We're going to go back to Egypt. There's no way we can fight the giants. But here's the thing. That... Height, that giant figure, stuck in their heads. And so when they demanded for a king, the first time they asked for a king, God gave them what's on their hearts and what's on their minds. A figure who was tall, like Saul or Shaul. Let me refresh your memory about Shaul. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 23. This is the first time that they will crown King Saul, and this will describe what he looks like or how he, uh, his height is. It says, and then they ran and took him from there, because he was hiding at this point. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. I mean, this guy is tall, Shaul. And Samuel said to the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. There is none like him, literally, because he was taller than any of the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. He was chosen for only one standard or criterion. He's high. He's tall. Kuy Edwin, how tall are you? 5'11"? Oh my goodness. The average Jew is about 5'8 to 6 feet, about Kuy Edwin. So if Saul is, is taller from his shoulders and up, he probably is 7 feet tall. Let me give you a, a perspective of what seven feet tall looks like. Let me show you a video here. This is very interesting. So, so Yao Ming is seven six. Let's see that video. Oh, Yao Ming was a former NBA uh, player. Uh, he's seven six, and he visited Pacquiao and Rios fight uh, in Las Vegas before they fought. And look at the difference of perspective. Look at Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao is. He's 5'5. He's about my height. Look at him. He's 7'6. We're not talking about giants here. I mean, he's just tall. So if Saul is this height, he's 7'6. I mean, look at that. So it puts in context why the people wanted Saul. They they wanted a king who would represent height because height represents leadership. That's how they understood it. No wonder the people demanded a king like Saul. Saul is the picture of the Giborim in Genesis 6. The Giborim also, the Rephaim in Numbers chapter 13. So what we're saying is that, this this is really fascinating. The first time I saw it, I was like, wow, come on. I mean, Bakiel is like a a child uh, beside him. All right. Thank you very much for that. Now, that's just some perspective on what a giant looks like. So when we're talking about the Rephaim, the Anakim, and the Nephilim, we're talking about people who are taller than Yao Ming, maybe nine feet tall. Because when you go to 1 Samuel chapter 17, that's going to be our sermon next week, we'll be talking about Goliath. Goliath is said to be nine feet tall and nine inches. I mean, look at that. Two more feet above Yao Ming, dressed in coat, And spear like a mighty warrior. It's exactly how it's uh, described in Genesis chapter 6. What's interesting is that Shaul, the first king of Israel, was asked by the people on the basis not of his heart, not on the basis of his strategy for war, but on the basis of his height, because he resembles the Giborim. Here's the thing God rejected Saul also, not on the basis of his height but on the basis of his heart. Because what God is looking for is a man after God's own heart. So the story said Samuel went to Jesse to look for all his sons, and all his sons were paraded in front of Samuel. Now, the first person that he saw was Eliab. Eliab was the firstborn. For all intents and purposes, all the firstborn will become the chieftain when the fathers die. So he will get all the rights and privileges of a firstborn. But God said, no, not, not Eliab. See, God works differently. He's not after firstborn, not because, you know, by birth they have the right. You know, Abraham was not firstborn. Isaac was not firstborn. Ishmael was born first. Jacob was not firstborn. Judah was not first. I can go on and on. God doesn't work that way. He's not conventional. And so, verse 6, it's interesting This is what it says. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Even Samuel thought, well, he's tall and he's the firstborn. Maybe this is God's anointed one. Maybe this will replace Saul as king. But God said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, it doesn't mean God hates tall people. God doesn't hate you, Edwin, even if you're tall. It doesn't mean like that. It just means that the height is not the basis for choosing a man on a mission. The context of this height goes all the way back again to the giants. The giants were the race of people that God wants Israel to destroy. That's why Israel were brought to Canaan to destroy all the inhabitants of the land. Because they have been polluting the land. But the people have chosen to follow what resembles the giborin, the giants, Shaul. So for the record, God does not oppose the tall people. Sidebar. Let me talk to the singles here. If you're looking for someone to commit your life for all eternity, please, your standard should not be based on the looks and the heights alone. Yes? The heart is also important. Give short people like me a chance. That's that's the whole point. Now seriously, if God has this standard of looking into the heart, it should be also a standard, looking into the heart. Because beauty fades, but character improves. Now back to the text. The next thing we know, Samuel saw all the sons of Jesse, seven of them, and every time God would say no. No, 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 no. But, But this cannot be right because God said, one of the sons of Jesse will become the next king. And so he said, is there anyone else? And Jesse said, there's someone else, but he's on the field. And he was tending the sheep. Now here's an interesting thing. The first time Samuel met Shaul, he was looking for lost donkeys. You remember that? What's interesting here, in contrast, was that David, the first time Samuel met meet David, he was taking care of the sheep, making sure they are not lost. Stark contrast to Saul. So verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. It's not really bad. He's handsome. Okay? Hindi daw lahat ng nagartista ay guapo. Meron din mga pastor na guapo. I don't know. I don't know about that. I'm not sure. But, but look at David. He was ruddy, beautiful eyes, and was handsome. Okay? Handsome too is, is important qualification. I understand that. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. This is the most important thing. Now, this guy was handsome and ruddy and beautiful eyes. What's missing, though, was the height. He's not as tall as Saul. That is to say, he's not king material, because he doesn't have the height, he doesn't have the stature, Or the high but notice that this was also the first time that his his name was mentioned david david means beloved so this is a good name for your if you're gonna have a name your son david is a good name it means beloved but here's the dilemma saul was anointed king although he was rejected by god he did not vacate his throne samuel anointed david now he is the holy spirit there's only one throne. There's only one crown. No two kings can sit on the throne at the same time. One has to kill the other, or one has to eliminate the other. The text says, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And that's the same thing that happened to Saul. When Saul was anointed king, the Spirit of the Lord also rushed upon Saul. But now, it's on David. Now, what's interesting here is that if you're reading your Bible, there's one judge by the name of Samson who was also anointed by God. And whenever he gets angry and and fights the enemy, the Bible would always say the spirit of God would rush upon him and he would have this supernatural strength. Guys, this is the original Incredible Hawk, Samson. You haven't figured that out. I was uh, going through the comic Bible and I was looking at this is Incredible Hawk. Whenever he's angry, he would fight the Philistines and he would have the supernatural strength. Samson would have that, and the phrase was, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, in the same way that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David as king. So here's the the other weird part, verse 14. Now, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Let me just pause for a moment. Let that sink in. The Holy Spirit departed from Saul, and what came is a harmful spirit. If you're reading your Bibles in NIV, the word for harmful is evil spirit. Isn't that weird? What's weird is that, huh, can God send evil spirit to me? (laughs) That's the question here. Can anything evil come from God? That's more probably the, the question here. Can anything evil come from God? In verse 15, it says, And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. This is interesting. Now, let's first settle this harmful spirit thing. It's Kind of confusing, but again, this is weird. Originally, the spirit of the Lord was with Saul, as was mentioned. But then, when God rejected him, the spirit moved into David, rushed upon him, and a harmful spirit went to Saul. It's coming back and forth, and it's tormenting Saul. That, that word torment uh, is the key word in there. The final authentication of who is king is the Holy Spirit, so David has it, okay? But what we have right now is the harmful spirit. now. To make sure that this is not confusing, the word for harmful or evil in Hebrew is ra'ah. It means bad, ra'ah. So when you eat something that you did not like in a restaurant, it's spoiled, it's ra'ah, bad, it's unpleasurable. When you eat something, you're, you, know, you, you eat a strawberry and it's too sour, it's ra'ah, it's bad, unpleasurable. So when the Bible uses this word for the harmful spirit, if you just go with Harmful spirit or evil spirit, and you go with that thought and build your theology on that, you're going to end up bad. So you will have to take the context in. The context of that evil or raah is unpleasurable, or incomplete, or bad. It doesn't mean demon, because there's another word for demon in the Old Testament, it's Shadim. So this guy, what I'm saying is that this guy, that harmful spirit, is on God's peril. This is a good guy, a messenger, an angel. Are we good with that? Now, hold on to your thoughts if you don't agree. Let me give you an example. Job. We know the story of Job, right? Anyone know Job? Job. Let's see hand. I'm going to make sure that we know. Cool. Thank you very much. So Job. So when you read the book of Job, at the very beginning of the story there was a council meeting of the sons of God or the heavenly beings, and they were saying, God, we have to make a report on you. And there's this one guy who just came and said, where have you been? I've been going back and forth. Now, unfortunately, the English Bible translates this as Satan. See, the Old Testament, Satan, is not a personal name. It's a title for, a, for a, like, a, like an oppressor or an an enemy. It doesn't mean evil or demon, okay? Satan, in the Old Testament, is not a proper name. You don't put, um, you don't put uh, the for Satan, because it's a title. So, so this is more like a, a prosecutor who is challenging God on this. And he's saying, I have found a man, and this man is by the name of Job, and he's righteous. And God said, yeah, yeah, he's righteous. But God, this guy is righteous, Because you're blessing him. What if we take away the blessings and I think he will fall and he will curse you? So God said, sure, go ahead. Again, this guy is not a demon. This guy is on God's peril. So this guy went out and in one day was able to take away all the properties of Job. Oxen were taken, donkeys were taken, camels were taken, the sheep were taken. In one day, the same day, All his children were having dinner and there was a tornado that crushed the house. All his children died in one day. And this came back, this guy, and he said, he's still good. Job is still good. He's not cursing you. He's still trusting you. But we have to do something more. And so God allowed this guy to inflict loathsome sores all over the body of Job. Now, in the book of Leviticus, every time there's sores, pus or blood coming out from the body, one is considered unclean. That's why you know, we have this issue of leprosy or menstruation. Job is considered unclean and almost half as dead. He's almost half as dead. He's good as dead, in fact. Well, the thing is, even in this condition, Job did not decide to curse God at all. Now, what's interesting is that all his family died except his wife, and unfortunately, his wife did not share his faith. This is what his wife said, Job chapter 2, verse 9. I'm not saying all the wives are like this. I'm just saying, Job's wife. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Ra'ah. What he says that evil, although is coming from God, doesn't mean God is evil. His theology about God is more robust because he understood that God is sovereign and everything comes from him. The idea of this evil here is punishment. Punishment does not necessarily mean evil, demons, in that category. Evil here is a sort of unpleasurable punishment. Ra'ah. It's not moral evil. Go back to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and he talks about discipline. And he would say, the, God disciplines you for the moment. It is unpleasurable. It doesn't make you feel good. But you need it so you can mature in faith. It's ra'ah. Okay. In the same way, what, what this is saying is that evil can come from God. This guy can bring evil or harm to Saul, but it doesn't mean this is a demon. Again, Uh, Have you ever thought about the angel of death that killed all the firstborn in Egypt at the 10th plague? Is this guy on God's peril or what? I mean, this guy, again, is on God's peril. He's a good guy. He's a messenger. But he was sent to bring the punishment of God. It doesn't mean he is an evil spirit. Whenever I take away the gadget from my 4-year-old daughter, she would say, you're mean, Daddy. I'm not offended with that. Because I know I'm being a good parent. So God may be giving punishments, but doesn't mean he's evil. Are we good on that? All right, now, back to Saul. The harmful spirit has one mission, to torment Saul. This word torment is very interesting because in the book of Job, he will toggle between the word torment and terrify. Toggle and terrify. This is a, an emotional, psychological torment for Saul. Saul. Now, how? How is that possible? Because if you are Saul, you know that God has rejected you, Samuel walked out on you, and anytime you can be murdered in your sleep, because there will be another king, then you will be terrified, right? I can almost picture the disciples on the boat in the middle of the storm. They're looking at the waves, and they were terrified. That's the word here. And so this harmful spirit comes to Saul and terrify him, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. Now, Anyone who has uh, read or watched Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you would try to recall that there's a character named Gollum. Anyone know Gollum? Okay, so Gollum is the creature. Good. He has the ring. He calls it precious. He took it by murder. And then he lost it. He lost it to Bilbo Baggins. And there was a scene where, where... Pff, where this guy, this creature, was talking to himself and he was saying, My precious, my love. <laughs> he was talking about the ring. The ring to him was the precious, it consumed him. So so he would do anything just to find the ring. Saul, imagine Saul on his throne, consumed by the, the ring, the precious, the throne, the crown. He wanted to keep it for himself. Although God has rejected him, he would not give it so easily to anyone. He's consumed by it. He's terrified by it. And the only way to calm him down is if David played the lyre. The lyre is a small heart. Verse 18, it says, One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, man of valor, man of war, prudent speech, man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, if this sounds like a resume, it is because it is a resume. And he is overqualified. The only thing that Saul needs is someone who can play the lyre, But he's overqualified this. He's got more skills than just playing the lyre. But the skill with the harp is, has one effect on Saul. Verse 23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now again, it would be irresponsible for us to build our theology on this, about worship, uh, only based on this one. The rule of hermeneutics is that we cannot build a doctrine based on one passage alone. But it will also not deter us from thinking that music and poetry is the language of the soul. It's the language of the heart. And, And when... He hears the lyre, he is refreshed. Sometimes I do this. Music is soothing. It's like warm tea with honey, it suits the soul. So, whenever you're stressed or worried or anything like that, try it. Find time to relax, pause, and meditate on the Word of God. Read a psalm, play an instrumental music. This is what I also do when I'm overwhelmed by, you know, when preparing a sermon. I sometimes do Rostopovich, using you know playing J.S. JS back. It's it's very soothing. Sometimes I do Yo-Yo It depends on what you do, but the idea is that music calms. And at this point, the playing of David of lyre calms the nerves of Saul, and the, the harmful spirit would always depart whenever David is there. The point is that. Listening to David, playing the hire, refreshes Saul. Now, this word refresh is not just a simple refresh, relief. This word refresh comes from an idea that whenever the harmful spirit would be on Saul, he's hard to breathe. It's like being choked. So whenever David would play the lyre, the word for that relief is ravak, relief. It's like you were able to breathe again. Have you ever felt that way? during the pandemic, when you were stuck in the house and you want to get out? I mean, I want to get out of the house. I feel like I cannot breathe anymore. This is probably the same thing that Saul has been experiencing. Whenever the liar, he feels rabat or relief. Verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, skillful in playing, man of valor, man of war, prudent speech, man of good presence. And the most important of all the qualification is The Lord is with him. Present tense. The Lord is with him. And as I was reflecting on this passage, I I cannot I'm trying to make a sense of what is what is it teaching about? What is this about? And then I was led by the Holy Spirit, if I can claim that, to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Let me read to you Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This is the disciples after the resurrection gathered together asking Jesus, When will you restore the kingdom? What's the backstory on this? First time I read this, I could not find the connection. I was thinking, How is this connected to the story of David connected to Jesus Christ? How is the story of David connected to Jesus Christ? But then I realized that the story of David is pointing to the story of Jesus Christ as the king of Israel. Well, during the time when Jesus was born, Herod was king. And for 30 years, you cannot find anything in the Bible of any big achievements of Jesus before he was 30 years old, before he started his ministry. You know, he did not go around the world or, you know, some people think that he went to Tibet and started Buddhism or became a, you know, whatever. Whatever. But you you cannot find anything, big achievements, before he was 30 years old. But then one day, when he was 30, he decided to start his ministry. He went for baptism, he went to the wilderness to be tested, and then he came back, went inside the synagogue, read the scroll of Isaiah, and said, I am the anointed one. This is how all the kings in Israel started. This is how Saul started, this is how David started. They were anointed. Jesus started this ministry with the announcement that he was the anointed one. Now, for so long, for 400 years, from the time Malachi was written, up to the time of Herod, that was almost 400 years, there was no king in Israel. No legitimate king in Israel. All the kings were not legitimate. They were puppet kings by Rome. Jesus did not do anything. And it's like us looking back and looking at David. He was Anointed as king, but he did not become king until Saul was killed. And that's after 40 years. He waited for 40 years. He was anointed, but then he had to wait for 40 years. David, Jesus was like, he was born, and the angels announced him as king, and the three wise men, it's not really three, and the wise men came and announced him as his king, but he did not take his throne until he was 33 years old. This is interesting. Now, remember the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish council that arrested Jesus because they indicted him as revolutionist. So once they went through the interrogation, they brought Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate had to uh, interrogate and ask, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Yes, you're looking at me. I'm king of the Jews. And so it is very clear that Jesus Christ did not deny of him being king. The reason why he was crucified was because he admitted to Pilate that he was king of the Jews. And why is that? Because in the context of the Bible, admitting that you are king is treason. Why? Because only Roman emperors have the right and authority to appoint kings in Israel. And if Jesus is claiming to be king, then he's committing treason. That's why he was crucified. On the cross, it's very interesting, there's a thief. And he had the same expectation of Jesus. He said this. One of the criminals who were hanged, Luke twenty-three thirty-nine. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now why is the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and the thief on the cross, why were all they knowing and expecting that Jesus Christ is the king or Christ? What does it mean for us to say that Jesus is Christ? See, if Jesus is king and the thief on the cross, that means the thief on the cross was within his rights to expect Jesus to act like king. What does it mean? Jesus must rally the people, build an army, and fight against Rome. That's what he's expecting. That's why he said you have to save yourself and us. Fight Rome. Now, everything about David And about his circumstances, point to Jesus. David was a Bethlehemite. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Both of them were anointed. David killed a giant. Jesus exercised demons. I'm going to go with that in other sermons. But both of them were rejected also. Both waited for God's timing to be enthroned. David waited for 40 years before he took the throne. Jesus waited all his life, endured the cross, and then he was crowned king on the cross, there was an inscription there. Jesus Nazarenus Rex Iadorum, king of the Jews. That was his enthronement. So, here's the idea. If the Sanhedrin is right that Jesus is king, if Pilate is right that he is king, if the thief on the cross is right in his expectation that Jesus is king, then after the resurrection, the, God, the disciples were gathered, and they were asking the same thing. Logically, if you're king, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Now, interesting, more interesting is that Jesus did not answer them. In fact, what Jesus said is this, Acts 1, 7 and 8. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What Jesus is saying is that God has already fixed, He has already ordained and established the rise and fall of any kingdoms. What that means is that God is not taken by surprise. God has total control of all the kingdoms of the world. Would you say amen to that? It doesn't matter if it's United Nations or European Union or the WEF or the BRICS. Everything is set in place. God is in full control. And therefore, to be preoccupied with the second coming is none of our business. Are you listening? So many Christians are so preoccupied. Pastor, when is Jesus coming back? I don't know. He did not even say. It's none of our business. What we should be preoccupied about is to become witnesses. Now, what's interesting here is that the disciples were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They saw that Jesus resurrected from the dead. They saw Jesus before he ascended to heaven. They were real eyewitnesses. They can testify. We did not. Anyone seen Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead? Anyone? No, we were not born at that time. So we cannot become eyewitnesses. But we can witness what God is doing in our lives, changing our lives. Because God is in the business of changing lives. That is what we can witness. You know, it's hard to evangelize. It's hard to explain the gospel. But it's easy to tell what God is doing in my life. Would you say amen to that? We are called to be witnesses in that sense. We are new creations. The Bible said that we have become children of God. We are the true imagers of God. If that is true, pastor, and when I look at my husband, I'd say, no way. We are children of God. We are imagers. When I look at my wife, it doesn't sound like it. Or, or I think of uh, somebody in the church that I don't like, and it's... It doesn't look that way. No way that we are imagers of God in that way. But you see, gold is gold. Before and after, the value of the gold does not change. But when you polish the gold, when you hammer the gold, when you put it through the fire, when you polish the gold, it becomes more beautiful. But the value does not diminish before and after. It's still gold. It just becomes beautiful. What that means is that you and I are like gold. Our value is not diminished even if God is trying to change you right now. But it means that God is not done with you yet. So if you look at your wife or your husband and say, is this the new creation the Bible is saying? Yes. It just means that God is not done with him yet. And so be patient. Husbands, be patient with your wives. Yes, yes. I didn't hear that. Husbands, be patient with your wives. Yes? Yes. Parents, be patient with our children. Yes? Because God is not done with us yet. Our value is not diminished just because we are going through the transformation. The key here is transformation. We are being changed from glory to glory. We are maturing in faith, not getting worse. We're growing in Christ. We're not getting worse. So in the same way, if I go back to David, he was crowned king. But it doesn't mean he's already ready for the job. He must learn to wait for God's timing. And so with us, we have to trust that God has everything under control. Why would he say that? Abraham waited for 25 years before he had Isaac. Moses waited for 40 years before he became ready to confront Pharaoh. David had to wait for 40 years before he'd take on the throne. How are you on the waiting game? So if you're saying and looking at your husband or your wife, saying, I'm tired of this. He's lazy as... You have to wait. We all have to wait. We have to be patient with each other. That's the whole point of it. Our job is to see where God is going so that we can follow His lead. That's our job. Our job is to look at no one else but Jesus. Do not look at anyone else. If you look at... In the church, if you look at each other and say, I'm offended because this guy or this woman, I want to go to church anymore, you will definitely be so. If you go to another church, you will also have that same experience. Our job is to look but no one else but Jesus. Our job is to be open-minded and accepting to the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Again, transformation, changing a person is not our job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. I cannot change you. I cannot even change myself. I allow the Holy Spirit to change me. Our job is to focus on Jesus. Let's pray.
1: Heavenly Father, we come to you today
0: and we expect not just change, but also definitely most, especially the change of heart because we believe that you're looking for a man after your own heart. We are not rejected by our appearances, but we can be rejected by our rebelliousness but we can also accept us and hone us and transform us and polish us like gold because you look at our hearts. Who can stand in the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His temple but he has cleaned hands and pure heart? And Father, as we grow in Christ, as we yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you will change our hearts. We yield to you. We surrender to you and become to you. In Jesus' name we pray.